You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of one of our YouTube episodes on Assassin's Creed Unity, which was published on January 19th, 2015. This episode features my talk with Professor David Andres about AC Unity's adaptation of the French Revolution. Today's date, September 22nd, marks the anniversary of the introduction of the French Revolutionary Calendar which established September 22nd as the first day in the new French Republic. That anniversary seems as good an excuse as any for this rebroadcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers Assassin's Creed Unity, a French Revolution game that has garnered heavy criticism from gamers and scholars alike. Our historical expert for today's show is Professor David Andres from the University of Portsmouth. Professor Andres is the author of several books on the French Revolution, as well as many essays on Robespierre and the Terror. Welcome to the show, David. I'm very glad to be here, Bob. Uh, So, David, this uh, Assassin's Creed Unity game, it's a departure for the Assassin's Creed series, and it's a a big departure for Ubisoft in particular. Uh, Ubisoft, of course, is a French company, but this is the first game in the Assassin's Creed series that has actually dealt with French history, Uh, and I would say that it's done so with pretty disastrous results. For instance, a lot of the gamers that have played this game have complained that there's very little context uh, for the events during the Revolution. For instance, you have uh, people rioting in the streets, you hear a lot of propaganda related to the revolution, but there's no discussion of the background of the revolution or the course of the revolution. So I was wondering if you could take a moment and just kind of briefly give our listeners some background on the revolution. Uh, What were the origins and what was the general course of the revolution? Well, that that is a very big question, Um, but, but I'll do my best to keep it down to a few minutes. The French Revolution really emerges out of a a long 18th century in which the French state is building up debts because it has a a pre-modern aristocratic social structure uh, and a very complicated arrangement of of office holding and, and aristocratic privilege within the way the state works, which makes it very difficult to tax the wealthy aristocracy properly. And over the course of wars, which which go right back to the beginning of the 18th century um, and culminate, of course, in the American War of Independence through to 1782, the the French state just piles up debt to pay for its participation in these wars. And then during the periods of peace between the wars, it generally tries unsuccessfully to reform itself, to make tax gathering more efficient. Uh, And each time it just generates more hostility amongst the elite more political infighting and backlash. So you reach a situation by the mid-1780s where 
um, the state really is facing bankruptcy. That the mountain of debt they're now trying to service is is exhausting um, the resources they have available to them through the systems that are in place. And the French Revolution really is a process then that gets underway of first the state attempting to re to reform things in 1786 and 87, um, facing resistance from the social elite, from the nobility, who don't want to have their privileges threatened. And then seeing stepping onto the kind of political stage, really, in 1788 and 89, the other 99% of the country who hadn't really been, been listened to before, that then becomes a process of national political representation. They decide they, the country has to have a new National Assembly um, to sort out these issues. Once the National Assembly comes together in early 1789, um, very quickly you get a structural conflict emerging between the 1% and the 99%, the aristocracy and everybody else, over how much change there should be. One of the really interesting features about that by the summer of 1789 is after the violence of the storming of the Bastille, there's actually a moment of great optimism, great national unity, uh, where there's an agreement to actually do away with all these privileges, create a society of equal citizens in, in what we would think of as a much more modern sense, um, and then to go through the processes of writing a new constitution, creating um, a well-organized society. But the underlying problem you have, which is the problem which leads you to the kind of events you see depicted in this game, is that the king and the queen, the royal court, um, and a lot of the most powerful aristocrats never really agree with that course of action. They're kind of cajoled into going along with it in 1789. But very soon after that, it becomes clear to everybody, really, um, that there is an aristocratic conspiracy going on to overturn oh. this. The king's own brother has fled abroad, um, very soon after the fall of the Bastille, and he's part of a network of, of conspiracies, what they call the émigré, emigrated aristocrats, plotting to undo the revolution. And there are then a long series of collisions, of, of alarms. Um, you have, a, again, collisions between optimism and pessimism. Mm. The, the revolutionaries who make up the National Assembly, for example, decide that um, the Catholic Church is really a branch of the civil service, that they can nationalise the land that the church holds, they can pay salaries to the priests, and they can kind of order them around. It's very kind of rationalised, modernising approach to the church as a social institution. Um, but this, this, this causes outrage literally amongst half the whole country um, and, and it is a really big factor in, in what will eventually become a kind of civil war. And so the, as the revolution progresses, there are these continual... Uh, collisions between a sort of optimistic attempts to create forms of national unity and really strong elements of resistance from the aristocracy, from Catholicism, from the rural population who are treated very badly by revolutionary politicians. They really think they can just order them around. And that leads to a lot of resistance. And also the kind of thing that you see particularly in Paris is that the anxiety about, anxieties about these processes um, stir up crowds, stir up a belief that, that particularly Paris will be destroyed by some kind of aristocratic conspiracy, some kind of counter-revolution. And so that prompts a lot of, again, anxiety and violence to try to push the revolution forward, to try to get past this, to destroy 
their enemies. And then as you approach 1792, a significant chunk of the political class decides the only way forward is to have a war um, because the aristocrats are conspiring with foreign enemies. Um, Marie Antoinette, of course, the queen is an Austrian princess and there's a lot of concern that her family is behind a lot of this. So in the end, you see the, the politicians who are, um, the Girondin politicians who are treated very charitably in this game um, are actually kind of warmongers in 1791-92. They want to create an open military conflict yes. because they think it will help to solve the civil conflict inside the country. And that, of course, unsurprisingly, goes disastrously wrong. Um, leads to, to foreign invasion, leads to a fear of collapse, and then leads to a, a desperate overthrow of the monarchy, the sort of republican impulse now to finally get rid of the whole other side of politics and start again in a republic. You then have a whole other layer of tragedy superimposed on top of the revolution because the republicans make enormous efforts, have an enormous military mobilisation, economic mobilisation, to actually defeat the enemies they're facing on all the frontiers from Spain and Italy, right round the Rhine, the north, they're fighting the British at sea. France is really encircled, and they do a tremendous job, as it were, saving the nation from this military threat. But at the same time, they've lived through years of fears of conspiracy, years of evidence of real conspiracy, and they can't trust each other. And you go down towards what we call the terror, to that period in late 1793-94, where there is an atmosphere of, of real paranoia in the political class. Nobody trusts anybody else not to actually be um, a traitor because they've been betrayed over and over again over the last three or four years. They've seen heroes be exposed as traitors and they're terrified of that happening again. And this is, this is, this is what takes you down to, to the events that everyone thinks of as being the the centre point of the revolution, the terror, which really lasts only a few months right. um, and end sort of paradoxically with Robespierre having the same thing happen to him. He is the sort of final layer of treason. They just, uh, everyone else is afraid of him and they decide the way to get rid of him is to do what he and other people have done to everyone else. They just call him a traitor. They say that he wanted to make himself king and they cut his head off and then they agree to kind of stop stop that kind of express train of exaggeration and, and paranoia that's been going on. But the guys that cut Robespierre's head off are as guilty mm. as anyone else of participating in it. It's just got too close to home. And that the end of the terror and the end of what people tend to think of as the French Revolution really comes about because people are afraid that it's going to get them rather than any kind of political principle. Mm. Yeah, what's interesting is that that's the moment that the game throws you into, right? So when the game starts, you've already got people riding in the streets. Uh, you have uh, mobs dragging people to the guillotine. Uh, and if you were to just play the game and not have any other kind of background knowledge in the French Revolution, you would assume that the terror was the revolution, that there was no period where there was... Uh, you know, civil discourse, <laughs> that uh, there was no period where there was uh, some sort of debate, that it was just all about uh, mobs in the streets uh, and killing aristocrats 24-7. Uh, yeah. But what you're saying is that, the, you know, the revolution went through many different phases, and it wasn't until, 
much later on that you have kind of this what you might call a radicalization or uh, a more violent period. Well, it's, it's a very interesting balance. I mean, you, know, you, you can go right back to 1789 and you can see episodes where there is there's, there is popular violence. There are crowds, there are people who are lynched, but you're talking one or two people here and then maybe one or two people a few months later. Mm. Um, it's, it's episodic. It, it's part of this sense that the, the authority of the state has crumbled um, and that crowds um, and people in crowds are often putting themselves forward as kind of guardians of the public security. You know, they're not killing people at random. They're killing people they think have done something importantly bad, often accusing them of being the leaders of conspiracies against the popular safety. But this is something that goes on episodically over a whole period of 89, 90, 91, 92, several years, in which on the one hand, there is a, an ongoing attempt to create a new stable society. But on the other hand, these, these rising fears that it's not going to be possible. Right. So obviously this game has some trouble with uh, portraying the events of the revolution accurately. But, I mean, just in watching the videos uh, that you saw of the game, I mean, what did you think of Ubisoft's portrayal of 18th century Paris? I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic piece of work they've done. Um, and obviously they, they, they did do some very interesting work with, with some historians to, to put this landscape together. I think certainly the... The architecture um, is, is very much what, what I think you would expect to see if you were there. Um, the, the major land, land, landmarks of, of late 18th century Paris are very well represented. I, I think what was interesting looking at it as a kind of social historian is, is what they've done in terms of the landscape as you walk through it. It's actually much more open hmm. than it would have been in real life. I would say the buildings are probably lower uh, and the streets much wider. Uh, in in a sense, I've kind of had to make room for you to play the game through these spaces. Yes, um, yes. Even even the things which I think in reality would have been dark alleys, five or six feet wide, or fifteen or twenty feet wide on the screen as you look at them. That's one of the one of the distortions you notice, which is I guess a compromise of the gameplay. Some of the other things I think are interesting to see are shop signs and things like that. It's, they've they've really gone for a sort of nineteenth century uh, landscape of of painted shop fronts with, with big signs painted on the shops. And the 18th century would have had um, much more sort of three-dimensional signs hung out into the street, particularly because the streets were narrower and the buildings were higher. You wouldn't have actually been able to see things painted mm. on the front of them. You'd have if things sticking out into the street would have been the view you would have had. So the look of the game, when it, when it comes out into a major space, when it's in front of the Bastille... Um, or the conciergerie prison, or Notre Dame. I, I think it's fantastically well done. But there's the, it's not it's not the real landscape of 18th century France in that sense. It would have been a much darker place. But I think also it would have been a much more communal place. Mm. I think I think again in terms of the game, you're walking through a city in which, as you walk through, people are being randomly murdered in front of you. Um, <laughs> and, and and that's not the kind of thing that happened. Um, Parisians, particularly by the time of the terror, are, are very alert to what's going on around them. You know, strange people wandering randomly through their neighbourhood would probably end up being followed. The National Guard would be called to interrogate them. They'd be asked to prove who they were. 
um, have their papers examined, possibly be put in jail until someone could be found to vouch for them. It's a it's a it's a city landscape which has a very modern sense of anonymity about it, that one can just roam around the city. And in the 18th century, cities are much more a sort of collection of urban villages. Uh, and moving from one place to another, you're moving through people's home space. People live in the street. So they understand what goes on in the streets, who should be there, who mm. shouldn't be there. Uh, and they're very willing and eager to come out and sort of interrogate former crowd. And in that sense, it's a very unhistorical experience looking at what's going on in the game. Sure, especially since you're uh, traipsing around the city with a cloak and... Uh, to, well, all, all that yes. kind of thing, yes. <laughs> That's interesting. I like this idea of the kind of the communal nature of 18th century Paris. You do get a sense of that uh, in the game. You do have different uh, districts that you go to, uh, you know, around the uh, palace, for instance. You only run into a certain sort of people. Uh, you can uh, pickpocket uh, individuals in different parts of the city, and they'll have uh, different amounts of money. Uh, based on what part of the city uh, that they're actually located in. Um, and, you know, I would say that this is probably the most work that uh, Ubisoft has done up to this point in trying to accurately depict a uh, historical city. Uh, but they do make some mistakes. Uh, for instance, one of the things I notice is that uh, uh, the streets of Paris are uh, filled with horseshit in this game. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as I can tell, there are only two horses in the city of Paris, uh, at least Ubisoft's portrayal of that. Yes, so yes. Uh, those horses have been up to uh, a, lot a lot of nasty work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that of course, is one, one of the things that people complain of consistently throughout the 18th century is, is people uh, riding their carriages recklessly through the streets, disregard for pedestrians. Um, the police records of the revolution are full of people arguing with cab drivers. Um, mm. Cab drivers are notoriously rude and aggressive um as indeed they can still be today but you know these, these are guys <laughs> sat on top of a carriage with a long whip in their hand and they're they're at the center of a lot a lot of a lot of fights a lot of arguments um and real kind of traffic jams sometimes that the police have to wade mm. in to sort out um but that is another thing obviously that's been just moved out of the way to make the game easier sure so this game has generated a lot of controversy within france um and you know, a lot of this controversy is centered around the game's depiction of the revolution and the player's role in that revolution. Uh, so for most of the game, the player uh, seems to be on the side of the monarchy, uh, seems to be on the side of uh, the counter-revolution, uh, attempting to help out royalists, uh, attempting to prevent uh, the terror, for instance. Uh, yeah. So can you, you know, explain for our listeners, uh, why is the memory of the revolution uh, so complicated in France today? And why do you think Ubisoft, you know, made a game that has the player in this role that seems to be counter-revolutionary? It's, it's an interesting conundrum. I, I think essentially you have to say that ever since it happened, the, the events of the French Revolution have been um, a reference point for French politics ever since. The, the whole question of whether or not there was going to be a restoration of the monarchy, you know, well, it, it comes back after Napoleon, then it goes away again, and it's not really until sort of 100 years after the revolution that France really decides that, no, they're going to stick to a republic. 
and and that kind of hundred years of political strife and of course the hundred years that have followed that have seen left and right that the traditions of left and right wing politics which come out of the revolution themselves really fix on the idea that that the revolution is is the possession of of the present day that it, that it means things to the present day hmm. and that particularly on on the left in french politics up until the 1980s, there was a very strong sense the revolution was a, a foundation stone for what they were trying to do in the present day. That 20th century socialism built on the heritage of the French Revolution, built on these ideas of freedom and equality, and that that really was unquestionable and unquestioned. And then in the 1980s, um, there, there's some very famous historical interventions, um, particularly one by a, a chap called Francois Furet, which really say that no, the the illiberalism, the, the violence of the French Revolution isn't something you can just push to one side to talk about liberty and equality. You have to confront it. You have to confront the idea that the terror happened. There was this sort of dreadful escalation of violence. And then in the end, you have to put the French Revolution to one side to focus on real freedom and real equality in a modern society. And that went down very badly with the French left. And as they exist today, well, the, the French Socialist Party itself is, 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 is rather centrist, but those forces in, in French society that are agitating really for the return of a real left, you know, of real socialism, are, are deeply concerned that when you see the French Revolution being treated in a way, which is essentially how counter-revolutionaries have treated it ever since it happened. Um, there, were, there were conspiracy theories coming out about the revolution while it was happening, um, of course, famously in, in, in English language culture, you have Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities. Um, you have the Scarlet Pimpernel a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. This this idea that that the terror is something evil yes. that takes over the revolution rather than being a sort of complicated set of circumstances is something that's never gone away. So, So people looking at what Ubisoft have done are really seeing and saying... This is just the same old story. It's the same old demonization of people who are trying to do good in very difficult circumstances. It's a demonization of the idea of equality, trying to put aristocracy back on the agenda. So in that sense, they're, they're saying exactly what you'd expect them to say about something like this. The game does take a very, very cliched, very literary and, and what is essentially counter-revolutionary vision of the actual politics of the revolution. Um, it puts the whole thing inside this this sort of cross-time conspiracy theory. And once you put a conspiracy theory at the heart of the revolution, you are essentially doomed to start to say things which sound counter-revolutionary because, because those two things have been together for the last 220 years. They are inseparable. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's so strange because Ubisoft has made, I would say, close to a dozen of these Assassin's Creed games, and none of the previous games had ever dealt with French history. And in fact, sometimes uh, it's very strange that they've never dealt with French history. For instance, uh, Assassin's Creed uh, Four Black Flag, which is set during the Age of Piracy uh, in the 18th century, there's no mention of the French Empire in the Caribbean. Absolutely none whatsoever. And now here they are in this year, this game, 
making a game that's entirely about French history and about the most controversial parts of modern French history. Uh, it just, it's just a, a very strange about face uh, by this company, and it seems to have gone uh, very badly for them. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it, it, is, it is an odd choice. I mean, one, one of the questions that, that, that listeners could think about is, is whether it does reflect some kind of movement to the right in culture in general, mm. um, that, that where, you, where you have an icon like Robespierre, someone who is an icon of the traditional left, um, people become interested in, in, in throwing stones at that, in poking holes in it, uh, in making it part of, of, of something else. And certainly there, there have been other, um, other issues. There, uh, recently there was a, a scientific team that claimed to have done a reconstruction of Robespierre's face from his death mask and from medical records and so on, mm. which presented a figure who was really ugly, that the image they produced was someone who looked dangerous and looked like a thug. And, of course, all the actual surviving portraits we have of Robespierre show him as being a rather delicate creature, uh, that he, he was a small man of rather delicate health um, who, who later suffered from kind of nervous diseases of one kind or another. And that itself caused, caused a great deal of controversy amongst historians, because it's part of a pattern in which it seems that the story of the revolution that circles around people like Robespierre might be being pushed to the margins or might be being turned into something which people are are, are accepting a negative Mm. version of this rather than a more subtle story about how these difficulties came up, how someone like Robespierre, as a popular hero, ends up in the position where people can accuse him of being a dictator and then cut his head off for it only a few months later. It is a very complicated story, and perhaps today people are too inclined to look for heroes and villains much too quickly in these kind of things. Well, so you mentioned uh, Robespierre, and he's one of many famous uh, revolutionary figures that's uh, depicted in the game. Uh, You also have Napoleon. Uh, You have uh, more minor characters uh, from the French Parliament, uh, from the French aristocracy as well. But, you know, from watching these videos of the game, are are there any historical figures that you wished had been depicted uh, in the game? Uh, And maybe to put it another way, if you were if you were making a game uh, on the revolution, what sort of historical lessons, what sort of historical figures uh, would you want to focus on? Well, I mean, that, that again is a very interesting question. I, I think if, if you were going to come up with a game which, which presented things differently, um, it, it would have to start from a very different perspective um, in, and in working perhaps from ordinary people's experience. Hmm. I think one of the things that's very interesting from the work I've done on the revolution is that from very early on, you see ordinary working people having opinions taking part in in public debate, forming clubs and societies or just talking in the tavern or talking in some of the open spaces of Paris like Palais Royal and and becoming engaged with revolutionary politics on a day-to-day basis and on interpreting what things mean and reading the press and responding to it, being part of the sense of the landscape of public opinion rather than just sort of followers. You know, they're not, these people are not just crowds they're certainly not a mob that can be sort of conjured up to follow leaders and it would be very interesting to think about a game which just took an you know an ordinary carpenter or cobbler or or tavern keeper and presented them as you work through various stages of the revolution with with some of the really 
complicated choices they had to make, who they're going to believe, who they're going to support, and what some of the outcomes are going to be, and try and, you know, the interesting gameplay aspects to it be whether you could you could stop everything collapsing into into terror whether there was some way in which ordinary people could have influenced the revolution in different ways or or whether it's just this machine that's doomed to grind people up from from its basic premises um so i mean that that's really my my thought about a, a different approach to this would would be that is is this all inevitable or or would there would there be ways in which lots of people could have taken different decisions? Uh, and I think that's that's a question that certainly agitates historians mm. still. Sounds very interesting. I like the idea of trying to put some contingency uh, back into the historical record. Uh, I think that might be something that's interesting to players. Yeah. There'd be a lot less stabbing, I think, but, but, <laughs> but on the other hand, a bit more thinking. <laughs> a lot less stabbing, maybe maybe a lot more uh, shoveling of horse shit, uh, for instance. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Well, with that, I think that's going to do it for the show today. Thanks again to our historical expert, Professor David Andres. Please tune in for more episodes. Mm-hmm.